Happy New Year from Jason and I. On this episode of AvTalk, we look back at aviation in 2018 and revisit some of our favorite interviews from the past year. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here in the new year with... Jason Urbanowitz. Hello, Ian. Welcome to 2019. Hello, Jason. Happy New Year. Thank you. Is this year going to be better than the last year? I, I hope so. Well, I, I feel like we only really have one direction to go. Yeah, you can only go up, I hope. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll knock on some wood here and, and go from there. But no, it was, how was your end of your year and, and the beginning of this new one? How how are you feeling? I'm feeling rested. I haven't been to the office in like a month, which is pretty great. But I go back tomorrow and back to reality, and we'll see where 2019 takes us. It, it well, it apparently takes us to the office. Ah, uh, I'm already not liking it. I'm just thoroughly looking forward to uh, to the kids going back to school. I've had that that line in my head from that one Christmas song where and mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start again. I've ha- I've had that in my head for two weeks. Poor poor Will. Yeah, <laughs> it's just you know being cramped up and everything like that. So, but we're almost there, and we're in the new year, and so to celebrate the new year, we are going to look at last year and go through some of the highlights. Uh, some of the the lowlights, unfortunately, of which there were plenty, and uh, some of the things that we found interesting, and and we'll sprinkle in a few of the interviews that we thought were some of the best fr- from the last year. Kind of look forward to to what this year has to bring. So let's dive in. There were a bunch of new airplanes this year, or certified airplanes, or airplanes that finally entered service. Right, um, you know, kind of, kind of, a lot of beginnings. Yeah, they're still uh, working on a couple year. of them. Well, yeah, I mean, but, but thing, things, you know, got started. And and which one do you think was was your either favorite or, or most impactful, uh, as far as the industry is concerned? Let's see. I'm going with the Beluga XL because it's just the most hideous looking thing. <laughs> I I like it. I mean, I, really I might do. like it more if they painted it in a less creepy scheme, but uh, okay, okay. The yes, the the beluga paint scheme is is a little creepy, but I I do I think it looks sleek. As it, it's sleek, sleek as a I giant mean, whale it, thing can look. It's not exactly as sleek as the A three fifty one thousand, which looks pretty great. Yes, this is true. The same with that the seven eight seven ten. I think is also pretty fantastic looking. Yeah, so what's interesting to me is that, and we've had this conversation before, is that the the seven eight seven nine is the right seven eight seven. Yes, the the, the dash eight is the wrong version. The the dash eight just looks like a. I think the only thing you can compare it to is like a seven six seven two hundred. Right. Just, it, it's it's the, just the, the the original stubby version that will be retired long before it's extended versions exactly and the 787-9 is the right airplane the 10 also looks good it does the a350-1000 i think is the right airplane yep i i think that's how i'm going to come down on this only really two versions of that right now anyway so well yeah i mean i, th- I think the a350-800 is i would be flabbergasted 
to say the least, if one of them ever gets built. Yeah, no. So here's a philosophical question. Do we get to count the A220 as a new aircraft for 2018? Well, I'm not counting it as a new aircraft, but I am counting it as as one of the two major aerospace coming togethers. Although I suppose you could say three this year, or, or at least three were announced. The Boeing and Embraer tie-up is... I think we're in the fourth round of the judge says yes, and then the judge says no to this particular tie-up. But but Airbus and, and Bombardier, they, they closed the deal. So, I mean, it's... It's not a new plane, but uh, but it, it's definitely a big step for the program. It's something. It's something. Also, the E2, I, I th- the yeah. uh, E190 E2 yeah. looks pretty good. The engines just it, look gigantic on it, though. It, it every time I look at that from the head, from like from like a, a front end head on view, it just looks like an airplane on steroids. Yeah, it, it's there's something like, proportionally it just, incorrect yeah, with it's it. Just, it's, it's just like it's got like these you know giant muscles on its wings, and then it's just this not as giant. Air, yeah, there's it's just proportionally. Yeah, it, it, it looks flew so through cool. a cloud of steroids, and, and its engines just grew, but the fuselage just looks puny compared to it. It's, I mean, it's it's amazing when you when you look at the engines. It's you know you can see right through them. I mean, just the the bypass ratio is so big. You just look right through them. I think the most inconsequential kind of new airplane or, or certification or anything like that was the A three nineteen Neo. Yeah, I couldn't even tell you who who if anyone operates it. Uh, well, I mean, it just got certified at the end of the year, and it means. I don't know what it means. Who has orders for it? Nobody? I don't know. Somebody I mean, I must. Somebody's got it. Nobody wants new A319s, let alone Neos. So I, I don't know. Some Somebody's got them. Or somebody will have them. Uh, you know, Air must have it. They, no, we're working on a on a fleet of uh, Basler BT67s. Oh, specific. So, yeah. No, I, I think it, I, should, I like the sound of that, uh, you know, that that engine oh you know what the first a319 neo ac it was an acj a corporate jet so uh okay yeah i i don't I even mean, know that, that makes sense there's no other launch operator right right now for it so if you have I, the I, means I like to pick yeah. one up uh i, I highly recommend it <laughs> i mean i feel like that's what's going to happen with the max 7 yeah no nobody wants that you know, they're too small it, there's it, they have orders i think there's orders for like 12 of them west yeah. wants a handful and then southwest has a handful yeah we'll see and then there's there's one other customer patch so patch exactly my fleet is growing <laughs> the a330 neo was come and gone and the the a330 800 the the shorter version got some orders uh maybe we'll see if they ever actually get delivered but the the 900 entered service with your favorite airline tap yeah hey the uh a321lr uh, is now in service. <laughs> An inauspicious start with that one. Well, you know, <laughs> there were some growing pains. Uh, growing pains isn't the airline doesn't exist anymore, so there is that. Well, no, Arkea has the. Oh yeah, but it was supposed L- to be delivered to Primera. God rest its soul. Well, but uh, yeah, that didn't work out. That did not work out. So, but the, the, you know, some some good stuff happened this year, and and there's you know we're on a start to some. Some other new aircraft. Some not good stuff. Yeah, and some, some not good stuff. But the one airplane that, that doesn't exist yet is the airplane that, that could exist soon. 
And a few episodes ago, actually, <laughs> 20 episodes ago, Damn. we had John Ostrar on the program to talk about what will become, could possibly become, will most likely become what Boeing is calling the NMA, the new mid-market airplane, what everyone else is just calling the 797, and, and we talked to him about that. So let's take a quick break, and we'll revisit that conversation with John, and we'll be back in, in just a little bit. And we welcome back to the program John Ostrauer, aerospace journalist, formerly with CNN, Wall Street Journal, Flight Global, and just an all-around person who knows a lot about airplanes, and that's why we brought him back, because we've got a new airplane to talk about. John, welcome back to the program. Welcome back, John. Thank you for having me. The new airplane that we have to talk about is actually, at this point, called the new middle market airplane. John, can you tell us what this is all about? Sure. So the new middle market airplane is the remarkably dry aerospace industry acronym NMA for what will probably eventually become the Boeing 797, the first all new airplane since Boeing finished the 87 in uh, 2011. And it is going to occupy a space theoretically in between the 787-8 which is about 240-something passengers flying about 7,000 nautical miles. And the recently launched 737 MAX 10, which is about 230-something seats flying Transcon US routes. So there's a hole in between those two, two airplanes, and Boeing wants to fill it with the NMA. And ultimately, they are trying to figure out what the business case for that airplane is. What's the market for, for it? Who, who wants it? How do we build it? Where do we build it? And more importantly, how do we make our money back on uh, a new aircraft program in a profile that is radically different than how so 787 went I, I kind of feel down? like the, U, the big U.S. airlines are clamoring for this thing, and they have been for years. They all, uh, American Delta, United, they all operate pretty sizable 757 fleets, but they're all aging. They're 20, 20 plus years old. Uh, A lot of them are actually quite old. And they're all really, they want this replacement. So what has taken Boeing so long to prove the use case, I guess? So this all kind of was really born from how do we replace the 757? And that's a discussion that's been going on for a very, very, very long time. The 757 was sunsetted in the uh, early 2000s, mid-2000s after after 9-11, and demand really dried up for for the airplane. And uh, that was a function of a few different things, but but mostly uh, a lot of that was also Boeing's strong desire to build the 737NG backlog and, and really kind of bolster that that fleet while still having a ton of 757s in service. So the need for a, a, a clean replacement, so to speak, a, a an airplane that could do the 757 mission in the same way that the 757 operated really wasn't that high. I mean, we saw you know what airlines wanted as far as seat count. You saw the 900ER. Now we see the MAX 9, which is going to be delivered uh, later in March for the first time. And we saw the MAX 10, which will be here in 2020. And so what ended up happening was Boeing goes and starts this conversation with with airlines saying, hey, what do you need? It's like and then what Boeing has always been remarkably good at is figuring out what customers want. 
And the problem is what Boeing has also been remarkably <laughs> remarkably bad at, depending on how you want to look at it, is also also saying no to customers. <laughs> because when customers, you know, want want the world, you tend to get features on an airplane that might be more expensive to develop. I, I would probably point to the bidet on the 787 and entry door um, floor warmers on the 87 also. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of little things that, that, that will crop up in terms of, you know, kind of what the airlines want that, you know, from a from a development cost perspective, may make a customer very happy, but they tend to be very, very expensive when you talk about a massively integrated airplane. So you balance those two requirements. So what the NMA has become is not really a 757 replacement. It's actually more of a, a, an airplane that sits somewhere in between the 767 200 the 757 200, 767 300, and uh, 757 300 also. So the kind of a mashup of of those airplanes, but with a range that isn't quite as far as the as the 767. Sorry, actually, late model 767. Actually, just as a, as a really quick historical aside, I went back and looked at what the original range expectations were for the 767 200, and it effectively was New York to LA. It was a 25, 2600 nautical mile airplane. And it eventually grew to 6,000 nautical miles over time, just through incremental uh, updates and continuous improvement. So just it's kind of interesting when you think about where that airplane began and where where it ended up. So but this is an airplane that, that sits theoretically, what Boeing has said publicly, 225 seats at six, uh, sorry, at 5,000 nautical miles. So that's about 10 hours of flying. But notionally, that would give you a lot of flexibility in terms of the U.S. to to Europe, North America to South America, deep in South America, Europe to Asia, Asia to Australia. So you see a lot of different route structures that are that can kind of be created or exploited around that. And not not to mention the fact that you also have on the upper end uh, a larger NMA, which would be about 265, 268 seats in a two-class configuration, about 500 miles shorter. It's so 4,500 miles. So you get – that would probably be the big transcon hauler potentially or you know your, your Beijing to Shanghai or Guangzhou shuttle that really just needs to move a lot of people at, in a short distance. And whether or not that's – is that five hours? Is that you know is that eight? You know, that's obviously for the airlines to decide. But, you know, it's it's really congested Chinese routes. It's New York to L.A. It's well, I, I think, you know, we saw LaGuardia Twin Isle operations. I mean, that's a that's a kind of a good example of of, of what we're notionally going to see this airplane do in terms of, you know, what its ability to go in and out of LaGuardia back and forth to, to, to Florida and so on and so forth. So you can see this sort of you know, large array of, of routes being created or, or, or being exploited, I should say, as a result of having an airplane that can do this kind of 757, very versatile mission, but also long range with a, with a significant passenger count. And it really kind of, it really is this hybrid between twin, you know, a, a you know, a, a larger twin aisle aircraft and, and, and kind of operations that are largely served by single aisle aircraft today. So it it really becomes a sort of mashup of different capabilities. So speaking of mashup, I'm taking a look at the, I guess, the diagram that you have up on, on your blog right now. And it 
kind of looks like a Frankenstein plane right now. You have the 7576777 windscreen. You have the 76200 small twin boarding doors, the, the 787 style windows, the tail cone of a 737 Max, and the wings look really like a 787. So it kind of seems like Boeing is just taking all the best parts from all its prior generation aircraft and, and thrown it together as one. That is, that's a good way to think about it. Uh, it's worth noting that, that while this, so just as far as where the origins of this diagram, and it is a Boeing created diagram and it, it's effectively a vehicle by which they're, they've used and are continue to use to, to speak to customers about what they're thinking. Uh, sort of, so it's, so it's not necessarily the, the final, it's definitely not the final form of the airplane. It's probably not even the interim form of the airplane, but it gives a sense of, of sort of a vehicle for discussion uh, around what what the kind of enablers of efficiency might be, and what the notional the notional attributes of, of the airplane are. So it's more about the the pieces of this that give a, a clue rather than the entire shape of it. So everyone, you know, sort of like, oh, it's just the seven five seven. It looks like a seven five seven. Oh, that's so boring. We've done that. Oh, it's so generic. Okay, fine. Yes, people are going to react the way they're going to react. But at the same time, it's also not. It's worth taking a lot of it with a very large grain of salt, but it does tell us a lot about how Boeing is thinking about what this airplane is going to be. It definitely looks like something new. It's This blog post definitely changed my mind that it is not just a straight up 757 replacement or, or God forbid, an even larger 737 MAX. It truly is something unique and filling a gap that does not exist today. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the question is, you know, the, we're talking about an airplane that will be here in no, really no earlier than 2025 because it's a lot of it's paced by development on the engine side of it and what GE, Rolls, and Pratt can do and when they can do it. And so, so within that, a lot is going to happen between now and then. And a lot of the closure of the business case is dependent on establishing how just how big the market for an airplane this size really is. And one of the big factors, because we are you know still sitting here seven years to go, a lot of those factors come down to how many airplanes is Airbus going to produce in roughly in the, the lower end of this category, namely the A321neo, Neo LR, which is going to fill a lot of the, the market for this. And, you know, one customer put it to me this way. said, there are going to be thousands of these things out there by the time this airplane shows up. So, you know, what is not only the addressable market, but what is the available market? Come 2025, and that's going to be an interesting question, because you know you've got a, uh, the replacement of a, of the 757 fleet. You've got you've got older, you know 737 900ERs that are going to be uh, need need replacing, and you know you see the dynamics shaping up here. But the timing of that and the size of that market is going to drive a lot of how Boeing approaches this. But I think I think the one thing you know while Boeing says, oh, you know we're not. We haven't made any decisions about this. We haven't made decisions about this. There is clearly a very, very large team at Boeing working on this. That is, there, you know, this is not a, a science experiment in the product development space. It is, this is very much, how do we make this work? And usually when Boeing tries, goes and tries to answer, how do we make this work? And which, by the way, is not a step they ever got to in 2011 when they were debating between replacing the 737 and and doing the max, it is a it is it is a a fully formed 
unit that is trying to answer this question. And typically when Boeing goes out and goes to say, hey, we want to answer a question, typically they do it. So it clearly this is at an at a, at a increasingly advanced stage where customers are, are saying, I want to be first. I want this. This is how I theoretically would use it. This is why it's attractive. And, and then you get the engine engine guys in the mix and, and you see things starting to take shape. So the existence of this image, the, exist, the, 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 the existence of, of, of these type of features tell us that Boeing is thinking very, very, very seriously about doing an all new airplane and beginning to take options off of the table, you know, not bringing back the five, seven, not rewinging the six, seven, not re-engineering the six, seven, you know, how do you, you know, again, how do you, how do you get to the, that end game? And this seems to be, you know, back to Boeing's DNA of wanting to do new airplanes. This is the, this is their next moonshot, despite having, you know, declared no more moonshots. They're back to the moonshot age. John, have, full force. you mentioned, you mentioned GE roles and Pratt and Whitney. Have they, given any indication of their interest in, in, you know, compete, I mean, would there be some sort of competition? Would this be something that there's multiple engine options and, and have they given any indication of what that engine might be? Would it be a, you know, a, a new engine or are we looking at something incremental that would fit this flight profile? Well, so a lot of whether or not so it's going to have at least one engine, <laughs> at least one engine supply. We know that. <laughs> that we know okay, that. that, that so, that's fair. Yeah, we, that that we can say that we can say that definitively. So the question is, and, and we don't think so. Everything that's out there suggests that there's not going to be three, because customers don't really want that. Boeing doesn't want that complexity. So it's really between two and one. And the question between two and one really comes down to the size of the market. And again, it comes back to what's what's the addressable, what's the available size of the market, and you know how do the three major engine manufacturers answer that question? So Pratt so far has said we would do a, a scaled up GTF, and you know looking at anywhere from what I understand to be around forty five to as high as fifty thousand pounds of thrust. You know GE would would do something through CFM with, and that would be essentially a um, you know a a hybrid of everything, all the technologies going into the GENX and all everything that's in the leap and sort of a mashup of new technologies, you know, likely conventional architecture. And yeah, that would be where they, they would sort of bring in an evolved version for that, that market. Rolls said they probably want to do a gear. They're almost certainly going to do a gear for this engine. But again, this is, they're, they're the pacing on this. You know, Boeing, Boeing would love this thing ready by 2024. But it isn't going to go anywhere unless you have an engine. So that is going to be driving. That's going to be driving the timelines on this. And the engine makers are are pretty darn uncomfortable with really anything before 2025 as far as a new centerline engine family, and and what that could mean. So we kind of have an idea, sort of, of what Boeing wants to do, what they may do, what their business ca- case may be. What do you see happening from Airbus? We have some concept of what they want to do, but why don't you tell us more? So what Airbus wants to do, I mean, the A321LR is the most obvious starting point. And that's going to be a, a, a vehicle for, for essentially holding, holding the line on, on the lower end of the middle the lower side of the middle of the market and Boeing's as well, you know, a twin can do, can do a whole heck of a lot more and it's more, more comfortable and, and, and so on and so forth. But ultimately Airbus has the option 
depending on what Boeing does, and again, that's pacing everything at this point, to essentially A310Is, so to speak, the 350. Take that nine abreast fuselage, shrink it down. Exactly how many people it would hold isn't really clear because, you know, Airbus historically has wanted to, Airbus and Boeing have, have historically wanted to leapfrog each other in segments. So do you, do you go bigger than 265 to essentially get the benefit of greater seat mile costs because you've got more seats? In the same, re, same way that Boeing went for the 777-9X over the A350-1000, having more seats, a lot of the, the claimed efficiency benefits that Boeing points to, a lot of that at least is in part a function of the fact that it just carries more people. So, you know, airlines will play with that, you know, dividing by the number of seats as a as a means of of increasing virtually the efficiency of, of an aircraft relative to another. Obviously, there's a revenue potential there that comes along with that. So, you know, it all balances out. But at the same time, you know, exactly where where this notional A360 or whatever we want to call it. I mean, again, it doesn't have a name at the moment, but whatever this notional study looks like would effectively aim to, you know, hit and respond to the NMA with, you know, a 321 plus or a 322 or something. And then on the upper end, effectively a new, a new twin aisle design that would take the best elements of the 350 cabin, but with a new more optimized wing for shorter shorter flights and an engine theoretically that could significantly Im- improve the business case for any aircraft manufacturer if if they get to use use it also if the engine is also developed for the NMA so it could be an interesting it will actually I can tell you it will be an interesting situation to watch unfold as far as how Airbus responds to this but again you know we're talking about airplanes that are probably at at the minimum you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years out, and that's a that's a crazy that's a crazy thought sitting here in 2018. Yeah, well, we're talking a, a decade out, and and we haven't even taken into account what China might be doing or what Russia might be doing since we've talked about them in the past. They also have some similar, very interesting things coming out in that time frame. Absolutely, absolutely, and the in the CR929, which is the Chinese Russian collaboration, is effectively creating a. 330, 350, 787 category airplane. And whether it's composite, whether it's aluminum, that's not quite clear. I mean, the Comac Research and Development folks showed off uh, a composite panel that they made that would theoretically be for the airplane. But no one's really sure whether or not that's going to be the final form because, you know, the reality is composites are really, really, really expensive. And that is... That is still a big portion of why the 8.7 was expensive as it was and why the 350 is is as expensive as it is. And from what I understand, it's about twice as expensive as aluminum based on the, at the same point. So, you know, the, the benefits have to outweigh, outweigh the, the costs here. And, and which also ultimately brings us back to the NMA, which is, is it composite? Is it aluminum? What's its shape? How do you make that work? And can you do it in aluminum? And, and, if, and can you do it in composite? So there are, there are a lot of interesting features of, of this airplane that are, that are going to test technologies that really are going to, you know, significantly shift how, if, if they're successful, 
significantly shift how airplanes are are manufactured and 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 what the capabilities for airplane makers to really shape metal and composite in a way that that gets them what they want. Where do you think Boeing would even build this? So Renton is kind of maxed out with the 737 program. Could it be? I see what you yeah. did there. I see what you Get did it? there. Get it? Do you see them doing this possibly out in South Carolina or, or sticking up in Everett? That's a great question. I, I think the one thing that's that's kind of clear at this point is that Boeing wants to make that decision a lot earlier than they usually do. Typically, they've launched a program and then sometime significantly at a, at a later point, not that much at a later point, but you know the, that where it's built and launching it have been increasingly tied. I mean, when, when the 777X launched, there was still an outstanding question about where the airplane was going to be built and where that wing was going to be built. And that didn't come until about the early 2014. But Boeing wanted them together. So, so I think that was probably a good indication of how they're thinking about you know, the manufacturing of of their new airplanes. So I think we're probably, when we get a launch of this airplane, we're probably going to get an answer as to where it's going to be built. But realistically, you know, when you think about the, the priorities that Boeing has identified as far as keeping the cost, development cost of this airplane low, setting up a new greenfield site, or significantly building new manufacturing infrastructure at an existing site is probably not going to help the business case as far as the amount of money you're going to spend. So how you keep that as low as possible is going to be a combination of, well, notionally, a couple different things. What are the incentives you get from any given any given municipality or state to to build there? Or, you know, what is what do you do with existing infrastructure? And, you know, you've got 747 continuing on for for the time being as as a freighter with the help of of UPS. You've got the 87 occupying a, a spot in Everett. And heck, I, I don't I don't get the sense that, that Boeing wants to earmark uh, Renton for anything other than 737 MAX production right now because the pressure, at least notionally, is to go even higher than than 57 a month in 2019. So finding space for that is probably going to be the, the higher priority rather than bringing in a, a, a twin-aisle aircraft. So theoretically, it's really – between Everett and St. Louis and Charleston, some horse, some horse race they're in. So, you know, there are various permutations that have been discussed about where, what, what might happen, where that might go, but that's going to be a big question. That's probably going to get answered in the not too distant future, depending on what individual state strategies are and what, you know, packages of incentives are assembled to, to have, uh, to have Boeing build their airplane there. So I, I want to take a step back because part of the conversation around the the new airplane that, that's interested me is the kind of push and pull between – and you mentioned earlier that Boeing tries to make customers happy sometimes to a fault with you know heated flooring and bidets and things like that. But but somewhere where it really matters is is the shape of the plane's – we'll call it belly. And, and that's been – you know. Uh, Julie Johnson at Bloomberg wrote a pretty good article on on detailing this a little bit, but I wanted to get into a discussion about why the shape of the aircraft, not just the wings, not just the engines, matters. And John, if, if you could kind of detail for us what the difference might be and, and why that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So notionally, the NMA is a twin-aisle aircraft. So twin-aisle aircraft historically are very expensive to build. They're expensive to build because they 
at a really obvious point, they just require more material. The The cost per pound of the aircraft is just higher. It's not necessarily a clean, you know, if cost per pound on a single aisle is X, well, it's not a, some, you know, you just don't take that and multiply it by, you know, however much bigger the airplane is. I mean, you what you're like you size up like that, everything gets heavier, everything gets beefier. The the requirements are are increased in terms of you know wing sizing and thrust and all the different pieces that come along with that. So when Boeing talks about this airplane, they talk about what their line is. Let's see if I can remember. It, it is so it's twin aisle comfort and single aisle economics, which is another way of saying in practical terms, above the floor. It would be a twin aisle aircraft and below the floor, it will be a single aisle aircraft capable of, you know, carrying a containerized containerized cargo and for bags like the 320 family. And so the problem with that is when the shape is a perfect oval, the way the pressure and the loads press on the outside of the aircraft, as it's been explained to me, and I'll probably butcher this because I'm, again, not an engineer, is that it applies evenly against the bubble, the, the, circular, the circular shape of the fuselage. And we've seen what's called a double bubble fuselage, which is a co- very, very common in the industry. We saw it you know, most, most ex- in most extreme way on the Strata Cruiser with that, you know, huge, you know, bulbous upper deck and a, and a lower, lower deck that it's, that's a, that's another bubble. But again, as long as the floor is at the, the meeting point of those two, the, 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 the loads on the, the frames and the fuselage skin are all even. But the problem is to do that for an NMA, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work because having a, a shape uh, that is, think of it like a like a like a seashell, like a, a seashell, with the kind of a, a lower, a smaller bottom portion and a big bulbous top portion. Well, you're not you're essentially dealing with an ovoid shape at that point, and you're getting it's not a double bubble anymore. And the way the loads and the pressures and the and the, and all the stresses are are distributed along the lower lobe, which isn't necessarily. A, a bubble, that's when it really, really gets challenging and you get an uneven dis- distribution of the loads. And that can be remarkably challenging as far as dealing with the stress on the airplane and, and how and how that's all distributed. That's a remarkably probably crude way of uh, of describing it, but it's it's ultimately what Boeing is trying to solve here. But Boeing, as far as I can, as far as the way that they talk about it, they believe they've figured that out. So what you get is this sort of 1.5x solution, which says, well, we've got this this twin aisle upper deck, but we've got this lower deck that isn't essentially a perfect mirror to the upper deck. So we're not carrying all that extra weight. So we can uh, get the scaled economics of a single aisle airplane for, for airlines. I mean, certainly the manufacturing processes that come with this are something that Boeing says that they've they have figured out that they haven't said what those are. They haven't they've only just said they've got it figured out. So that's their secret sauce right now. But as far as the that push and pull from an airline perspective, this is what Julie talked about in her article, which was which was excellent. Uh, The idea that underneath the floor and this comes back to my earlier point about not being able to say no to airlines that. Carriers in Asia want 
to carry 10 tons of cargo in the belly. And U.S. airlines and European airlines want to carry five tons of cargo in the belly. To some extent, that will dictate the shape of, of, of what goes on underneath the floor. However, volumetrically, five tons and 10 tons can take, take very different shapes. So I think a lot of the discussion around this is how do you size the wing? How do you size the thrust of the engine to be able to efficiently carry five or 10 tons of cargo? And what do you optimize around? And the, the push-pull is sort of if uh, A321 with the 97-ton maximum takeoff weight, so a 321LR, can carry five tons of cargo, wouldn't you want an, a product that differentiates itself at 10 tons of cargo? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe it's no. But again, it comes back to the the ability of, of of not letting this creep up into the small 787 category when you've got airlines like Norwegian who are ready to buy a bunch of them saying, well, you know, cargo doesn't really matter. But for the Asian airlines, the priorities are different. So it's really going to be about how Boeing balances that re- that requirement, but also not letting the mission creep up to a point where every time you add more capability to the airplane, you're also adding more cost. And being able to say, no, this airplane is this, and if you want an airplane that can carry a lot of cargo, we have a 787 for you, and say, you know, we've got a product there, but this is not that. So that might artificially limit the the size of the market, but is there a trade-off with how much it's going to cost and the pace of that return? So again, you know, I don't, I don't envy Boeing. I mean, but this is the stuff that they, they love doing. They love figuring out how to make new airplanes and their business models work. As uncomfortable as that, that can be sometimes, this is what fundamentally they love doing. And this is in their DNA. I mean, creating new high performance aircraft is what Boeing loves to do. It's expensive and it's getting more expensive, which is a, a totally separate strategic discussion about the future of the aerospace industry. But fundamentally, Boeing right now is in their element as far as where they like to be thinking about new products. I think that we should leave it there because anything anything else we discuss is just going to be so far into the future that I'm not sure <laughs> it's worth getting so far into the weeds. But I, I think we've got a good a good basis for kind of understanding the news that comes after this. And and John, I know you're going to be following this, I think very closely is putting it lightly, but if there is, you know, more firm news, we'd love to have you back to to discuss where the airplane's headed and, and what it's going to maybe look like in its intermediate stage. I would love that. Count me in. John, thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking with John Ostrauer. You can find him on Twitter at John Ostrower, J-O-N-O-S-T-R-O-W-E-R. And johnostrower.com is his blog. Go check out. We'll put a link in the show notes to check out his fantastic article complete with annotated diagrams of the new NMA concept. And John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, John. So we've got that to look forward to in the coming year, likely in time for the air show this year. So we'll hopefully see a new airplane in this year. Well, we'll see which, the uh, plans or Well, we want to see the actual plane, but I mean, it'll be official. Let's hope. 
That's, uh, we're all waiting. <laughs> that's all. That's all we can do. We're all waiting, Boeing. Shall we move on to airlines that are no longer flying? Let's go take a roll through the graveyard of airlines we've lost in 2018. All right. So we've got, I, I think the the biggest one, at least as far as kind of a shakeout in the industry was, was Primera. Mm, I don't know. Primera was- You don't think so? Primera was pretty small. I'd say- the the loss the actual net last nail in the coffin of Virgin America is up there for me. I say Primera because not because they were a large airline or anything like that, but because of what their cessation of operations kind of portends for the low cost space. Yes, I feel like the canary in the coal mine, if you will, as far as what's what's on the horizon for for ultra low cost carriers that are trying to make long haul work not so successful. I'm, I'm not so sure. Primera Air suffered from bad timing, late deliveries, and also just a bad idea. They've been around since 2003. We're getting this information off of Cranky Flyer's annual list of airlines we lost. Um, and they decided to enter the market, but they didn't have the aircraft to do it. So they needed to order new aircraft, but those weren't delivered on time. And so they had to lease aircraft and that didn't work. And they burn through all their cash. So the actual concept of flying low-cost transatlantic isn't a bad idea. It's just these airlines that keep trying to do it don't actually have the planes to do it, and they keep almost or actually failing. Okay. That's a fair counter-argument, sir. Who else did we lose? Well, okay. So let's talk about Virgin America because it, it seems to be – it was Virgin America, I flew them a couple times and enjoyed their flying, but it, it was never a big part of my life. But you seem to be affected by it. So, so let's talk about I it. I never actually flew Virgin on a revenue flight, but I like just having them in the market as an innovator, as a, a fierce competitor. Alaska took them over and kind of decimated the operation. They're getting rid of all the things that made Virgin America an, an outlier, something special, and they're gone. So they also kind of just lagged behind everyone else as they innovated to catch up with Virgin America and their product became quite outdated compared to everyone else. But it, they were just, you know, kind of that airline that was out there that everyone loved to fly. They had very loyal customers and Suddenly, the airline just stopped existing in April, but their aircraft are still flying 99% of them in their original configuration. So they're still out there for the time being. You just have to book them as Alaska and go out of your way to look for them. Yeah. We talked about FastJet a couple weeks ago. Yep. So they're, they're done. They're gone. Open Skies, uh, another transatlantic skies, yep. competitor. They were the IAG or British Airways way to operate to Paris from New York. I think it was only New York actually with 757s, which were okay towards the very end of their life. They actually had an old British Airways 767 to add on that went to Newark. And in the eye of all the other, I guess in the, the face of all the other competition that IAG has Level and June and Norwegian, it just wasn't a place for it anymore. And British Airways ceased that operation September 2nd, 2018. So BA no longer has open skies. I think they shifted it all to level. Yep. Yep. So le level is now the, I guess, with the IAG low cost airline of choice. Or something. Or something. 
And finally, I mean, the, the list is long and, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but we'll end with the uh, Russian airline Saratov, which was around for, for quite some time. I mean, dating back to the Soviet Union. And they had some some issues with you know the, the aviation authorities and, and things like that and a number of safety violations. And, and that kind of all culminated in, in January of this year when the Flight 703 crashed after takeoff, about five or six minutes after takeoff from Moscow. And it lasted a few more months and then was, was eventually shut down when the Russian authorities said, okay, you're, you're done. So that was kind of our entrance into 2018. It was, you know, after after such a safe year, I mean, o- almost 400 days of no fatal jet airliner accidents, we started off this year with, or last year now, with crash, basically, uh, within the first three weeks. Yeah, 2018 was a severe and sudden course correction on that. Uh, I, as someone I follow on Twitter, I don't remember who it was, the 2017 was almost... Uh, too safe, not to say that there could ever be too much safety, but it was just so preposterously safe that 2018 in comparison almost looked like a disaster, but it's still ridiculously safe. Yeah, I mean, the the statistical likelihood of, of, of the 2017 was, you know, astronomical and, and, and 2018 really kind of, I guess, brought us back down to reality to the yeah yeah such as it is but but yeah we, we started the year with, with the saratov flight outside of moscow and then just a week later was the uh the iran osman uh 3704 which crashed in, in iran and then in march the u.s bengla flight 211 crashed in on landing what on what, one of its second or third landing attempt in Kathmandu. So not a good start to the year. And then April was a shock to the system with Southwest 1380. Right. And That uh, was the uh, uncontained engine failure, which resulted in the death of a passenger, the first in the US since 2009. Yeah. So that was a rather crude rake-up call. Uh, and, and that uh, led to a number of you know increased inspections and accelerated inspections to to make sure that there weren't any problems with the the CFM 567B engine and and all these things so it was uh something but i mean the 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 plane landed safely i mean which is when you're looking at the the engine you're thinking okay that's that wasn't a given once you see pictures of the the damage to the to the fuselage and things like that but a, a safe landing and and sadly a, a passenger died yeah. And then just in the next month in May, there was the Global Air 737-200 Classic operating for Cubana, crashed almost immediately after takeoff in Havana. And I don't believe we actually know what caused that yet. Uh, no, it's still under investigation. I haven't seen any reports. No, nothing. Yet. I mean, the only thing we have to go on is the the executive director of the of, of Global Air mentioned something about what the pilots were doing but but of course that's not official that's not an investigative authority or anything like that so it's absolutely unclear still right what what caused that and then in september we had air new guinea flight 73 which crashed 
into the water. I believe it was short of the runway into a lagoon. Yeah, it was, it was uh, short of the runway into a lagoon. I don't want to say good thing about that, but the the benefit of having the crash where it was was that there were U.S. Navy trainings happening right there. So there were Navy personnel basically right where the plane crashed and they got to the site and there were you know a number of boats and things like that near the lagoon. So they were able to to help the passengers you know, get out. And it, that was a very interesting situation because initially they said everyone had survived and gotten out of the aircraft and it was, you know, a huge relief. But then I think it was almost a week later, they said, well, we're actually missing somebody. We thought this person had gone to the hospital, but we haven't been able to find them. And unfortunately, they, they found the, this person in near the airplane in the water. So that was, uh, I think, a, a single fatality there. Yeah, not not great. And then, and then October. October. Yeah. The end of October, Lion Air 610 crashed 11 minutes after takeoff from Jakarta and set an entire you know, uh, chain of events uh, that has led to uh, revelations about new automation that Boeing installed on the 737 MAX maintenance issues possibly at Lion Air, how the airplane is flown, what types of sensors and systems. I mean, it's it's just been one thing after another be, because of this of this particular crash. Something that that we've been following very closely, you know, here here on the podcast and and we'll continue to to do so in in the new year as we move towards a final report hopefully sometime this year. Right. And then in, we're getting more recent, November, the Aristana E-190 that lost a lot of flight control after taking off from uh, Lisbon, Portugal. If you haven't seen the flight path of that, I highly suggest you take a look and just be thankful you were not on board that aircraft. But thankfully, they landed safely. So uh, yeah, they, better uh, ending. they managed to regain control of the aircraft and landed safely, which is, I mean, given the flight path, I'm amazed. Yeah. And this is the one, if you don't remember, that the pilots were very insistent that they ditched the aircraft into the sea. Uh, thankfully, they didn't do that, even though they really, really wanted to. But they could never get uh, a, a solid flight path in any one direction to actually get to the sea. And by the time they uh, they had figured out how to control their aircraft, they were able to land instead of ditching, which is always good. Yeah, so we'll we'll take we'll take the good news where we can, and end the year hopefully quietly. I mean, there, there were there were some other things that happened throughout the year that were some were you know I feel like we've talked about runway overruns and and runway excursions a lot this year. Yeah, the Skyly seven four seven, the Fly Jamaica seven five. I say the Fly Jamaica seven five seven because that was their only seven five seven. That was a runway overrun. In uh, after an air return to Georgetown in Guyana because of a hydraulic issue, so that wasn't just we landed where we shouldn't have. They had a legitimate mechanical issue, and then there's all the times where aircraft, seemingly the pilots fat fingered the flight management system and put the wrong weight in. So we've got that LL flight that barely was able to take off. I think yeah, they there take was off. A, yeah, yeah. There was a cargo flight. I don't remember exactly which one it was. There's been a bunch of aircraft landing on runways that aren't open yet, which seems to keep happening recently. 
air India Express took off barely and struck the ILS array and uh, brick wall. I think there was the, what was it, Air Arabia in Dubai, was it, that took off from yeah, like, they, they, uh, the Sharjah, I think. Yeah. It took off from the threshold pointing the wrong freaking way and took off with like eight feet of runway in front of them, which is miraculous. That was pretty much it. Yep. Yep. So that, that was a thing. UTR 579 exited the runway, all, all sorts of very odd and nearly catastrophic things happened last year. But from the, the grace of good luck and, and sheer stupidity in some cases, uh, it didn't. Yeah, it was 2018 was bad. Yeah. It could have been a lot worse. Yeah. I feel like there were a lot of, more <laughs> than there should the, be of these. It took us a year to come up with the tagline, but that's it. Yeah, there were that's a lot it. of these instances. 2018, it could have been a lot worse. It could worse. have been a lot worse and almost was. Uh, there were a lot of these incidents yeah. where they were just – there was nothing preventing them from disaster except for just sheer luck. The first incident of the year, I think it was the 13th of January, was the Pegasus flight in in Turkey that landed, veered left, and the runway is on a cliff. It's on a cliff, and it went down the cliff and almost went it into went the ocean. down the cliff, yeah. There's no, I don't see an official report on what happened, but there was, was word that maybe there was an engine surge that dragged them to the left or something and almost down, but the, the sourcing on Wikipedia on this one is, is iffy at best. Yeah, so it, we'll we'll hopefully see a, a final report somewhere in there. But basically, the plane went off the runway and down a cliff. Yes, or in it, we'll, we'll call it we'll call it an embankment because I, it it's sort of sloped, I guess. Yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the technical definition of cliff is, but needless to say, it, it was not what it was supposed to do. No, but there were a couple of these instances. The flight crew put in the wrong weight in the flight management system, and they were off. Like 100 tons or something crazy like that. And the aircraft just barely limped off the ground. Um, I believe there was an LL 789 recently. There was a cargo flight. I can't remember exactly who, but check your math. And then yeah. check the numbers you put in <laughs> after you do the math. There you go. What else uh, happened this year? Oh, the the first thing, the the, the, the funniest thing that, that I thought was the Norwegian plumbers. I just thought was the... For me, one of the most amusing stories of 2018. God, that feels like forever ago already. I, it, well, I mean, it was, you know, it was a year ago, but we talked about this. I don't even know in what episode, but a group of Norwegian plumbers were on a Norwegian air flight to Munich to go to a plumbing conference or, or trade show. <laughs> this joke writes itself. Yeah, right? And the toilet stopped working. And that's funny enough in itself, but the manager or the, the executive of the, the plumbing group that was on its way to, to Munich commented in, in the Norwegian press that unfortunately the problem needed to be fixed from the outside and they couldn't send out a plumber at 10,000 meters. Mm -mm. <laughs> I just thought, you know, he had a good sense of humor about it. That's that's a fun story. That I mean, you know, it, it, these things are always a... Anytime the toilets stop working in flight, it's always a, it's always a good time. Yeah, but if if the flight crew calls out, is there a plumber on board? And 160 people raise their hands. That's uh, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Let's see what else. Oh, your favorite thing: Lufthansa's new livery came out this year, uh, last year. Remember, the livery was so dark that they had to go back and revise it because air traffic controllers couldn't see it at night. This is the best thing to me because. I remember when American Air came out with their new livery, they had 
painted they they had taken an old plane, chopped it up, and painted fuselage sections, and took it to a parking garage in Dallas or California or somewhere where okay. it was sunny, as one does. And they had taken it and left it outside and looked at it, you know, away from the public eye, but you know, painted it in the in the colors that they were going to to see what it looked like in the sunlight. Apparently, no one at Lufthansa ever thought to what does it actually look like painted on a plane outside. Yeah, so that's they, a, they went a critical back misstep, and, and it's also just boring. And warmed up the blue. It's just boring. Yeah, it's it's very Lufthansa, I guess, is what it's efficient. What we're getting at here. What were some of the other things that happened? The GE9X flew for the first time. Yes, this, um, the oldest. Talk, talking about engines on steroids. Yeah, the oldest operating 747. Well, at the time, it's now retired, I think, correct? Yep, it flew its final flight this year and is now at Pima Air and Space. Pima Air and Space has really. Yeah, I think. We, I mean, just in the last year. I think we talked about that expanded quite recently. Their collection. Yeah, yeah and, we did. Well, I mean, they because they got the, the first 777, the Cathay retired this year. They've got a seven eight there, and the uh, the seven eight seven, and now they have the one of the oldest seven four seven one hundreds, and the oldest one that was operating up until uh, well, they retired it from engine research in twenty seventeen, but it retired to the the museum this year. Yep, last year. But it, I, it's... we're recording on the first of January, so it's. The year is new, so yeah. I, I apologize from going this year, last year, back and forth. Uh, get it straight. It's 2019. I'm still writing all my checks on 2018. I'm surprised you're writing checks at all. That's another conversation. I think I wrote one check last year. Huh. I have to write one every single month, and it kills me slowly. Yeah, uh, let's see. What else did. happened? Uh, some some pilots drew some airplanes and hearts in the sky. Mm-hmm. As they do. We didn't have a lot of – uh, we had one Christmas tree this year. And a couple people wrote a uh, 2019 in, in the sky, but it was not a huge year uh, for sky drawing like it was in years past. I mean, 2017 there there was Boeing drew the Max, they drew the 787 with a 787. They, I mean, they did all sorts of stuff. This year we got a couple hearts and a couple planes, and that was about it. Yep. And so that if, was kind of 2018 in a nutshell. Yeah. The, oh, well, there were a couple other things that were kind of just in the most ridiculous thing that happened this year was the Kim Jong-un flying to Singapore. Aye. That was fun. Tons of people following that flight and the call sign switching once they got into Chinese airspace and, and all that fun stuff. And who knows, it could happen again this year because there might be another summit. That's true. So that'll be something to that'll be something to follow. And Air France's 787 footage was a lot of fun. I mean, technically, wasn't that done in 2017? Yeah, it was filmed in 2017, released in 2018. Who knows? Maybe they'll do a sequel for for 2020 or something like that. But the last and most ridiculous thing that happened this year happened right at the end of the year. Uh, Gatwick, Gatwick, Gatwick. What the hell happened there? I mean, you I, got no, you don't, I even don't even have words. So I, I we got recorded I got our last podcast just as this was starting. They were like two hours in, and we didn't really know what was going on there. And it was just stunning the next two or three days to watch this go on from afar as the airport remained closed the entire day preceding our recording, and then a bit into the following day, and. There's zero proof that there was ever any drones in the sky. I've, we never saw pictures. We never saw video. 
a lot of sightings were possibly actually police drones that were sent up to look for other drones. And I don't know. Again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but what the hell happened? I got nothing. No, nothing. It's, it's, uh, yeah. If anything, it really raised awareness. Don't fly your drones near an airport. And the UK actually has a lot more lax regulations than the US. I think the US is five miles within any airport. The UK is only one mile, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, but uh, still, don't do it. <laughs> That's how we begin 2019. Yep. Don't, don't do, do it. it. Don't do anything. Nobody touch anything. <laughs> just leave it. Just leave just it alone. Stop. Just for the don't do anything. Year. Don't touch anything. Just, just, let's just all live. So we heard from John in, earlier in the podcast, and we thought we would kind of close off a, a review of 2018 with uh, one of the other conversations that we really enjoyed, which was with Captain Ken Hoke from UPS. He is one of the most knowledgeable people in aviation, and he's done our, our glossary terms in, in some, some previous podcast episodes, which we'll link to in the show notes. But we actually got to sit down and, and talk with him about what it's like to to fly cargo and how that works and some of the things that he's flown, seen, and done in his uh, long and storied career with a number of different airlines. And so we'll leave 2018 and welcome in 2019 with our conversation with Ken Hoke. Thank you, everyone, for, for listening and, and joining with us in episode 48. Jason, we should probably get ready for episode 50, huh? Yeah. When are we, are we doing Maybe that? do something like, special. Uh, yeah. What, what do we do? I, I don't We'll have to figure it out. Maybe we'll go skydiving. Oh, no. And do, and do the podcast from... No? I we'll might figure be, something It might out. be a little wind noise on that recording. If you have a suggestion for something special to do for episode 50, drop us a line, podcast at fr24.com. And we'll have to figure something out because I think we should do something special. So we will leave with our conversation with Ken Hoke and we will see everyone in a couple of weeks for our first real new episode of 2019. Happy New Year, everyone. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Happy New Year. Happy 2019. And let's try to be a little better this year, everyone. That's, that's the tagline for 2019. Let's try just to do be better. a little let's better. Do better. All right. As promised, we are back now with Ken Hoke, who is a Boeing 757-76 captain. We've always described him as a as a captain for a package express airline. I believe last episode I described it as drably colored. Are we going to reveal the truth this time? We're going to reveal the truth right now. <laughs> Ken Hoke, a captain with UPS Airlines, welcome to AvTalk. Thanks. It's great to be here, guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So I, I think first we should say thank you for, for last episode, your introduction to, to our podcast. We we asked you to define METAR, and you came back to us with an absolutely wonderful explanation, complete with sound effects that we were not expecting. Did you ever so, find the sound so effect for, for volcanic that. ash, or are we still looking for that one? Yeah, I, I gave up. Oh. I, I think it's a, probably a loud explosion followed by whoosh or something like yeah, you that. You don't want to hear I, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we just don't want to hear that. Some <laughs> Someone on Twitter suggested that it would be uh, Captain Moody's announcement to the British Airways flight <laughs> after good. they had lost all four engines. <laughs> I ah, thought that was a, a, a decent ooh, yeah. one. Not too much distress. Yeah. No. Ouch. Yeah, we don't want to do that. 
today we're not, well, we might define something, who knows, but <laughs> that's not exactly why we brought you on. We brought you on to talk about, first of all, being a pilot and being a, a cargo pilot, especially because, you know, you're flying as a passenger when you're flying in an airline, you get a, a little bit more insight into what's going on up front. You, you can see the, the pilots working before the flight or or you just see them in the terminal and things like that. With cargo pilots, I mean, you, you see the outside of the plane, you know, flying and, and that's pretty much it. And it, it's a bit of a mystery, I think, to most people. So we wanted to talk to you about that and, and some of the things that you've helped us out in the past as a jumping off point for conversation. But, but this week I posted on Twitter a, a very tongue-in-cheek, and some people took me seriously, and that was a bit scary, saying that the the short 330, which was variously described as a refrigerator box with wings. Garbage and can. So, uh, Jason described it as a garbage can, and someone else mentioned that it's the only airplane that's ever had a bird strike from behind. <laughs> So, yeah, flying box car. I think that's another one. Yeah, and flying that was shoe another box. One. So, yeah. so you you chimed into the conversation saying that you started off flying. Which aircraft was it? I flew for a, uh, American Eagle, uh, flying Metroliner twos and threes. Metro twos and threes. Sometimes they're called Merlins, but it's a swear engine aircraft and uh, really long and skinny. They were <laughs> the nickname for them uh, is the San Antonio sewer pipe because they were built in San Antonio <laughs> and they're skinny, just just like a long skinny tube. They're great fun to fly. Uh, it's a good plane for pilots, not a whole lot of comfort for passengers. I haven't heard too many positive comments about sitting in the back seat of one. I think they still uh, operate out west for some cargo airlines. I think I saw the last they, time I was at the Phoenix. Might. There was a whole fleet of them. Yeah, and there's also a bunch in Minneapolis. When uh, On the UPS ramp in Minneapolis, there's a bunch of feeders. I think there might be a couple up there. And actually, m- most of those are beach products. But yeah, you still see you still see Merlins here and there. So, so you, you started there, and, and you're currently flying the, the 757 and 767 now. So how did you right. get from, from there to, to here? Well, I started – I'm all civilian, civilian background, and I started flying at uh, Middle Tennessee State University, MTSU in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, is where I got my degree. Flight instruction background, I did single engine instrument and multi-engine instruction in the Murfreesboro area, Smyrna, Tennessee area. Flew Part 135 Charter, flew Piper Aztecs, Piper Chieftain, Piper Navajo, Cessna, some of the twin Cessnas, I don't remember the numbers anymore. Also flew part-time at the Tennessee Department of Forestry, looking at uh, pine beetles and forest fires. And that was that was all before I got on an American Eagle in uh, back in Nashville when they had a hub in Nashville. But I flew the um, metros for a year or so as a, in the right seat, and then I upgraded the left seat in the Jetstream 31. We had they called them 3201s. They were super 31s. They were you know so much more super than the regular 31s. I guess. Yeah, Americans big fan of you know upgrading things to the super. Yeah, these were super all right. <laughs> I think they had a little bit heavier takeoff weight or something, which still wasn't enough. But uh, yeah, I flew those for a while, and that was that was a great job. That was fun flying out of Nashville to, you know, in North Carolina, Kentucky, down in uh, Mississippi, Alabama. So Southeast U.S. had was covered. 
And then, then I hit the jackpot. I scored a job at UPS back in uh, late 1990. Put in my application, got an interview, and they hired me. And uh, the rest is history. I started out at UPS on the the mighty Douglas DC-8 uh, as a flight engineer. DC-8, wow. So how much training was there switching from, I guess, your history of flying propeller-driven aircraft to the mighty DC-8? <laughs> well... It, it was interesting. It was definitely a change for me because I, I went to the backseat of the DCA, which is the flight engineer panel. So there, there wasn't any flying at all. So you go to a couple of months of school, learn about all the systems, learn you know everything about what makes the airplane tick and then how to operate the engineer panel. And back then, the engineer panel, you ran... 10 fuel tanks and all the levers and gears and pumps to, to move fuel back and forth between tanks to the, to the four engines, pressurization system, electric, pneumatics, hydraulics. You had everything back there. So that was, it was, it was a lot of fun for 25 year old young pilot get to play with all that cool gear. But I did that for about four years, but, but then it was time to start learning how to fly again. Cause after, after flying the regional, then sitting in the back seat of a of a DC-8 as a flight engineer, then I had to go up to the front right seat, and after four years of not flying anything, and start over again. So that was fun. <laughs> so I went from yeah twin engine turboprop to a flight engineer panel, and then flying a four engine jet. So that was a culture shock. Wow. And UPS kept the DC-8 around quite a long time, didn't they? I don't remember exactly when they retired, but it wasn't all that long ago, was it? Yeah, it was about, I want to say about nine years now, because I finally, I got displaced off the DC-8 and uh, went over to the 7576, which which was another cultural uh, shock, you know, going from a 1950s technology all the way up to a 1980s technology. Yeah, you wouldn't think of uh, the, the 767 as technologically advanced these days, but when you're coming from the uh, the DC-8 with yeah. an engineer station, it's quite a leap. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, it was a leap. Now they, they, they almost don't call 75s uh, glass cockpits because it's, it's got two little glass screens for each pilot in the front and the rest are round dials. Anything uh, with a, a CRT-based screen can't be a glass cockpit at this point. <laughs> Hardly. And, and of course, the new cockpits aren't glass either. They're LCD screens, so they're plastic. plastic. I guess we have to call them plastic cockpits now, I suppose. But yeah, so that was fun transitioning from a DC-8 to left seat of a 757 and 767. And well, we get to do another big transition here pretty soon. Uh, UPS just started sending their seven, I think our first 757 went in to be have a new cockpit installed so they're putting in the large screen displays and all of our airplanes glass or plastic well i think i think they're plastic i think they're, they're lcds so that's that's plastic right something like that i think so, so how, how much <laughs> how, how much transitioning does that take to go from you know the, the current you know 757 look, looking at that that flight deck up to a brand i mean it's not a different airplane to fly but there's a lot of changes there yeah and and i can't answer that question for you because I don't know yet. We haven't seen we haven't seen the training program yet, and we haven't seen what's going to be involved in the in the transition. But pretty soon we'll see it because our first airplanes was sent to I can't remember where they sent it, but yeah, the first airplane's getting converted. So pretty soon we're going to 
be starting training. I'm sure it'll it'll be a little bit of home uh, home study, computer based training, probably some videos, and probably there may be a training uh, session in a classroom or a, a training device of some sort. So, are the seven five and seven six more similar than they're dissimilar, or, or how difficult is it to swap Ooh. between the two? It's not hard. The cockpits. Once you sit down in the seats, the cockpits are virtually identical. There's a, a few minor systems differences because the 7.6 was designed as an ETOPS airplane, so, so it has some extra things on it. But if you, if you were to just hop in and sit down and look at the overhead panel, look at the, the front panel, you might not even notice a difference. They do fly a little bit different, but after... After a couple of weeks of going back and forth, you, I don't even think about it. You just you just hop in and go. There's a, there's a few memory item kind of things that are that vary. Engine starting the engines a little bit different, but yeah, it's it's very. They're both very intuitive. Jump in and go. So which one do you like better? Which flies better? Which are you more? I guess you're probably comfortable in both. But if you had to pick, if they said you could fly to Anchorage in a seven five or a seven six, everything else being the same, what do you pick? Oh, you said Anchorage, so that that, that influences the judgment. See, for a long for a long flight, seven six all the way. It's like a it's like a big fat Cadillac, you know, big comfy seats, <laughs> smooth ride. But if you're gonna fly like from Louisville to Chicago, I'm going to get in a 75 because it's more fun to fly. It's it's more like more like a sports car. Well, they they called it the Atari Ferrari back in the day because it was state of the art video game, you know. So the the 76 is the comfort ride, the 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 uh, yep. the Cadillac. 76 is the Cadillac and the the 75 is the sports car. So I I do I do really enjoy flying both of them and depending on the mission, they're both fun to fly. So Ken, you are a cargo pilot and I'm very interested in the differences between kind of what your workload is, you know, from flight to flight versus a commercial pilot who, who's carrying passengers and we'll, we'll be generous to passengers and not call them cargo as well. <laughs> Self-loading cargo. Yes, exactly. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be generous to them. But I mean, I'm curious to know what, what the difference is like between how you prepare for a flight versus how someone flying, you know, Passengers on a seven six seven might prepare for a flight. Uh, okay. Uh, well, it's been a few years since I've had passengers, but <laughs> <laughs> the jobs are similar. Pre-flight, both a pilot for a, a passenger and a cargo, we're going to be looking at weather. You show up to work an hour, hour and a half early. We don't obviously we don't have flight attendants, so that's one piece of the puzzle that a passenger crew. We'll uh, have to coordinate things with with the rest of the with the cabin crew. We we don't have a cabin crew. We do spend more time, I think, talking to load supervisors. Uh, let's see. And then once once the cockpit doors closed, I think the jobs are probably pretty similar. We don't we don't have to worry about uh, seatbelt signs have, uh, as much. Have, have you ever had a disruptive passenger? <laughs> I had a disruptive passenger. In the terminal, not on the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was a good story. I don't know. Do you want a good story? Always Tri- love a good story. C- yeah. Tri-Cities, Tennessee. First flight of the morning. It was like 7 a.m. from uh, Tri-Cities to Nashville. We show up. There had been an ice storm that night in Tri-Cities. 
and the mechanic couldn't get the airplane open. It was like an ice cube. He couldn't get the, the main cabin door open on the jet stream. And he tried and tried, and he just couldn't get the airplane thawed out to the point where we could get, get it de-iced and, and get moving. And there was one passenger booked on that flight to Nashville. And uh, they ended up canceling that flight and just uh, waiting until the there was another flight scheduled two or three hours from then. So they canceled the first one and just rebooked this guy on the second one. Well, I made the mistake of of walking into the terminal to to get some breakfast and some coffee. And this guy saw me and he he kind of walks toward me and he says, are, "Are you are you flying this airplane?" And I said, "Well, unfortunately, we canceled because we can't you know." It's, can't get in it. It's frozen. And, <laughs> and he, he looks at me and he goes, I know why you canceled it. I'm the only one on there. You're not going to fly this airplane because you didn't want to fly one guy. And I was like, oh yeah, that's not why, you know, they need this airplane in Nashville. So then he proceeded to like start yelling and screaming at me. And I was like, uh, you know, sheepishly slinking off, trying to, trying to hide. Everyone knows that yelling and screaming fixes everything. I'm sure the ice melted immediately once you started yelling. Yeah, yeah. That was, so that was awkward. <laughs> you should have sent him. You should have sent him outside to go yell at the yeah, plane. That, that would have worked that yeah, great. Blow some hot air on the airplane. But uh, no, sir, sir, just yell louder, yeah, but, please. But that, I mean, that was a piece of cake. I, I, I've never had a a, a two hundred and sixty passenger airplane with two hundred sixty angry angry faces at me. So, so that that's one difference between passengers and cargo. There is there's a lot of a lot more passenger service demand on a flight crew when you've got a lot of, of people in the back. Uh, on the cargo side of that, you have the pressure of, of thousands of packages making a sort. And it, that gets to be really critical. When, when One of the things that surprised me when I got hired at UPS was how much pressure, or I shouldn't say pressure, but, but how important it was to, to get those planes into the hubs on time so that the things could get sorted. It's a, it's a really big deal. And the company pays a lot of attention to timing, how everything works, speed, speeds of the airplanes, everything is managed down to the minute, how fast we fly altitudes, everything's optimized just to make sure the cargo gets to where it needs to go at the right amount of in the right time. So it can coordinate with other cargo and, you know, Similar to passengers making a, a sort, but but it's similar but different, I guess. It's hard hard to describe. Have, have you have you ever had the the chance to fly the? D- does UPS do a hot spare as well? They sure do. Yeah. So have you ever had a chance to fly that? Yeah. What's the? I mean, to me, for for those that that don't know what a hot spare is, and can correct me if I'm wrong in any part of this. Sure. Basically, an empty plane takes off from from an airport and. If it's needed to, it lands at another airport where something has gone wrong. Either uh, a plane has gone tech or there's been a, a larger amount of packages or something like that to make right. sure that all of the packages get to where they need to go. But it takes off empty every night, and that's crazy to me. Now, this this is something UPS used to do, and I used to do it on the DC-8. We used to do it – there was a, probably a couple. It would do a couple airplanes, a couple different parts of the country. We have not done that for several years now. But okay. what you described, we called it the airborne hot spare, and they would fuel us up. They would give us a flight plan. They would follow our flight plan to, from Louisville to Minneapolis. Then they would put they put three box lunches on for us, 
<laughs> and we take off from Louisville and we head out over Minneapolis and we would tell the controllers they they were used to seeing us they knew what we were there for and we would just uh, go in a holding pattern at like 28 29,000 feet and pull back to our economic most economic speed power setting and we would just hold and we would have enough fuel to hold for say an hour or two hours and and what we were doing was we were holding during that critical two hours when all the airplanes in the northeast United States were preparing to launch inbound to, to Worldport in Louisville. And if an airplane started firing up its engines and all of a sudden had a problem, they would immediately divert us to that airport to, to do a rescue. And so within 30, 40 minutes, we could be to you know, a dozen different airports in the northeast U.S., why Minneapolis? Was it just proximity to other proximity? Major, yeah, or... yeah. Near you know Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, Milwaukee. You know there's there's probably probably a dozen airports, uh, Des Moines up there in that vicinity. So it's it just a good proximity to get to a bunch of places. When you were up there on those hot airborne spares, how often were you actually needed, uh, as opposed to how often you actually just went back to uh, Lexington it, and called it a day? You usually, oh gosh, we probably got. Not very often. It was rare. The company felt that one rescue, where you could swoop swoop down and you know get all this cargo and get it to Louisville almost on time, one rescue would pay for weeks and weeks and weeks of this thing doing it. But as I said, I guess they they felt the the necessity of it. Well, we don't we don't do it anymore. So obviously, it's not. Is it that reliability of the newer? modern aircraft is just that much better than the, the old DC-8s. It could be. And we, yeah, we also had 727s back then too. It could be a, a reliability issue or it could just be, we also have hot ground spares in Louisville. So when something breaks, let's say a flight from Chicago to Louisville has a problem, an issue, maintenance issue, they would launch the Louisville hot spare from Louisville up to Chicago and they would rescue the, the freight and bring it back into Worldport. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure what the, the 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 reason behind doing it or not doing it. So when we talked to Andrew, we talked a lot about what's actually on board the aircraft, and we we got that ketchup uh, packets. Awesome revela- revelation. There's yeah. ketchup packets because <laughs> ketchup of course that was great. Uh, yeah, I'll never let that one go. But are you aware, or or at least a little aware, of what exactly it is you're hauling? Uh, I know lithium-ion batteries are a huge concern these days. Is it does it jump out to you in the manifest that you have these batteries? We do. Or yeah. Do you uh, well with especially with lithium ions lately we get a list of hazardous materials that we're hauling with each flight. If if we're haul, if we have declared hazardous materials, we'll get a an inventory of what they are and where on the airplane they're located. And so in that respect, now sometimes we don't know if they're in phones or TVs or whatever. We just know we have them and we know how many we have. And and those aren't the ones we're really worried about. If if companies declare them, we know that they're carefully packed and there's probably safe. But usually we don't we don't know exactly what we're carrying cuz we're carrying thousands of packages from different from different companies, manufacturers, from you know, people sending stuff to their kids in college. There there are times that we will get special 
shipments, holidays are interesting. You know, we just had a we just had Mardi Gras last month. I had an interesting flight a few years ago, right uh, before Mardi Gras from New Orleans to Louisville. I took a 767 completely full of king cakes from uh, bakeries. <laughs> yeah, from bakeries in New Orleans and in Louisiana, flying them while well, they were being sent all over the world, people ordering king cakes. So, so sometimes we'll go, what, are, what is all that you guys are loading back there? And the load supervisor will say, you're getting a load of king cakes. So, <laughs> Someone's yeah. Gonna so, hey, so, so sometimes we'll get special shipments like that, like especially during holidays. Well, another good one. Now, I don't fly the South American routes, but Valentine's Day, we had plane load after plane load of uh, flowers flying from South America up to... Uh, to our Miami hub, which then they, they get sorted and redistributed throughout the country, throughout the world. Right. So you're not always flying these planes when you're on board. Obviously, there's sometimes where you're, you're deadheading, you're moving between locations. What's that like in some of these aircraft? Ah, oh, jump seating. Yeah. And that varies. Uh, probably the, the most comfortable, We our 747s have old domestic style business class seats in the upper deck of the 747 behind the cockpit. So that's a, that's a really nice way to fly. When often if I'm jump seating from Louisville to Anchorage or from uh, Anchorage over to Asia, they'll put me on one of our 747s. So that's very comfortable ride. MD, MD-11 has uh, fairly comfortable seats as well. Our A300s have really comfortable seats. I'd probably prefer flying in the A300 jump seats over everything. 7.6 has okay accommodations. 7.5 is tiny inside. Not not a really comfortable plane to jump seat in. Unless you have to unless you right, absolutely have to get somewhere and that's the way to go then sure. Wonder what the jump seats on the, the your your company's new seven four dash eight. I haven't like. seen them. Well, I've seen pictures of them, but I haven't been in one yet. So I'm I'm very curious to see how those are. But I've I've heard that they're they're pretty nice. Ken, speaking of the the seven four seven dish, are, are you kind of set as a seven five seven seven six seven captain, and and you're just you know that that's where you want to be, or or is there? Do you kind of look at the seven four seven every once in a while and go maybe? I, I'm happy where I'm at. We, I'm in a position, this, my, my level of seniority, I can fly any fleet I want. I can go to any domicile I want. So where I'm at, I, the, the 7576 international domicile is in Louisville. I live in Louisville. My family's here. Uh, My wife's family is, is here as well. So I certainly don't want to leave Louisville. Our 747s are all based in Anchorage right for now. So if I were to go fly the 747, I would either have to move the family to, to Anchorage or I would have to commute to Anchorage. And I, I would get the same pay, which that's one thing that's really nice about UPS. It's a little different from other airlines is all the all the different airplanes pay pilots get the same hourly pay regardless of how big the aircraft is at most airlines larger airplanes pay more but with UPS we we don't have that differential pay which is which is nice you don't have to chase an airplane to get more money so i really like the variety of the routes that i fly i like living in louisville i don't have to fly 
take a jump seat to Anchorage and lose a couple of days a month uh, jump seating and in, in, in back and forth to work. So yeah, I'm, I don't have any interest in changing right now. So you mentioned where you fly, but where do you typically fly? I I tend to do these Asia trips just because they uh, they seem to work out with our family schedule. So tip, typically my trips are twelve to fourteen days. I'll leave Louisville, uh, head up to Anchorage, then usually over to Japan, then over um, I'll hit. Shenzhen, which is in the Pearl River Delta down by Hong Kong. Sometimes we'll go to Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, Penang, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Taipei. So all, all the places with the best yeah. food. Yeah, yeah. I, you have to like Asian food to do this or you're in trouble. But it's fun. Yeah, lots of noodles, lots of rice, fresh fruit. Hopefully the uh, in-flight catering for your flights home back to Anchorage, <laughs> get some of those noodles and dumplings. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Shenzhen always puts dumplings on our flights if we want them, and they're they're pretty good. They they have like this garlicky sauce, and you put the dumplings in the oven and heat the sauce up. You can always tell a plane that's been in Shenzhen because you get in it and he's like, oh, dumpling sauce, jeez. <laughs> yeah, we know where this plane's been. Do you have a favorite city to visit? There's a few Penang, which is a uh, island off the coast of of Malaysia, is gorgeous. It's probably one of my favorite legs. It's we usually fly from uh, Kuala Lumpur to Penang. It's about a fifty minute flight. It's really fast, but it's really scenic, and it's a resort island with a lot of high tech manufacturing, which is why why we go in and out of there is uh, for electronics shipments. Beautiful, beautiful island, though. Singapore is always fun. You know, what's not to like about Singapore? It's a beautiful city. It's clean, safe, food. So, yeah, if anytime I can get a weekend in Singapore, I'll do that. Does your family ever, you know, say, bring this back or, you know, you have to, you know, don't do not do this or, you know, things like that? Or, or are they just, is it kind of like dad's going to work? We'll see you later. Yeah, dad's going to work. See you later. Yeah, they... Uh, <laughs> The, they, they the, the no mystique idea. is worn off. Yeah, they have no idea where I'm where I'm I'm going. My wife, I, I've got a Google Calendar that I put my schedule on, and then I've shared it with everybody, with all the four kids and and my wife. And my wife will still ask me, like, "Where where are you right now?" I'm like, look <laughs> at the Google Calendar. <laughs> it's like I I don't have time for that. Just tell me where you're at. Just just tell me where you are. Yeah, are you in Japan? Are <laughs> so, you in China? You know, but yeah, she. She'll know when I'm in China. She knows when I'm in China because the internet's terrible. And, and like, I'll be trying to call (laughs) her and like, oh, shoot, I'm, you know, I I can, I try Skype. I'll try, oh, what's the, uh, I'm, or what's the, the Apple FaceTime. FaceTime. Yeah. FaceTime audio. And it'll always cut out and she'll go, you're in Shanghai, aren't you? Like, yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I guess you're, you're probably, uh, cargo pilots, I guess, are, are a small subset of American pilots that probably get to a lot of these cities. Do you find the air traffic controllers, I guess, are they familiar with your accent or is any of the airspace you go to more difficult than elsewhere? That's a good question. English is the international language of aviation. And the English that's spoken is a, is a subset of the English language. It's called ICAO English that all pilots and controllers are supposed to learn. And it's 
to dictionary of I don't I can't remember how many words, but it's there's set words that you have to use. And for for an English speaking person, it's very intuitive. It's not difficult at all. So most places is not too bad. Some places better than others. Uh, Japan, the controllers are awesome. They they Japanese pilots in the Japanese airlines speak ICAO English to the controllers. Controllers speak English to to all pilots, including the Japanese pilots. Taiwan, excellent controllers, very good English. Uh, Malaysia's good. China is interesting because they speak Mandarin to Chinese-speaking pilots, and they speak English to English-speaking pilots or 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 non-Chinese ch- pilots. You know, like if, if Air France is coming in, they're gonna the Chinese controllers speak English to them, which which is a challenge because you'll hear you'll you'll be hearing two different languages at the same time on the frequency, and you're you're trying to listen for your call sign, and you go, oh, was that us? No, wait, that was Mandarin. Okay, here's us. You know. So China's challenging in that respect, and they're supposed to be switching to English, but they haven't yet. Yeah, I gotta imagine that's disorienting. If you're in crowded airspace and they're talking to other aircraft and you can't understand what they're saying, that, it, it that's, is. It's that strikes me as really and they're disorienting. going, you know, rapid fire, rat a tat 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 in English. Then they'll turn right around and and rapid fire clearances in Mandarin. So it is challenging. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't really. I'm trying to think of an airport like JFK where the the controllers speak basically in, in hyperspeed, and I can't imagine going in there not speaking the same language as them and not having like a situational awareness of what everyone else is doing. That's right. really kind of crazy. And, and, and that is one it. one of the things when you're when you're being sequenced for an approach, they might be sequen your your controller might have say six seven airplanes on the frequency, and you can learn a lot by hearing what he's telling other airplanes you can figure out where you are in this line of airplanes that that's coming in by like oh he just told that guy to turn so he must be up here 5 miles ahead of us but but when when they're using two languages it does become a challenge cuz you don't know who they're talking to or what they told them but it that's part of the fun of it it's a, it's a challenge which which makes it fun that's what we're we're in it for Ken, I, I, I think we, we need to leave it here, but I want to thank you for, for joining us in, in the long form of the program. Sure. It's my pleasure. And this was a lot of fun to talk to you and, and learn more about uh, – every time we, we talk about cargo, I, I feel like I'm getting like a, a sneak peek into a, a world that is you – know, there's a lot going on there that, that we don't know about. The exclusive world of ketchup. Ketchup and king, uh, cakes. And, king cakes. <laughs> and seafood <laughs> and all those other things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and for, for the glossary terms that, that you're doing. A lot of people loved them in the last episode and, well, and we're looking forward to, to having some more in, in future episodes as well. So yeah, uh, really looking forward to getting some more, uh, some glossary super. terms out there. I'm, I've learned a lot just from the first one. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see what we've got. Uh, All right. Coming up well, you guys got to shoot me some ideas and I'll whip them out for you. We will. We'll do that. All right. Ken, thanks so much. We've been talking with, with Ken Hook, a UPS 75776 captain and former Metroliner pilot. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me on. It was my pleasure. Mm-hmm.